The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Good morning, faithful few. How are we doing? Good, good. So obviously, if you haven't already, open up your Bibles to John chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be looking at the verses that were just read um, clearly. So in our passage today, we get the honor of revisiting a very popular character in the, the Gospel of John who is not Jesus, and that being John the Baptist and his testimony. We get to, to revisit that. And so pretty quickly into the, the Gospel of John, the book of John, we're introduced to this person, John the Baptist. So if you remember back to the prologue, so the prologue being these first 18 verses, uh, we're introduced to John the Baptist in verse 6. In verse 6, we saw that there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and we know this person to be none other than John the Baptist. Verse 7 says, We saw that he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And so here we saw the purpose of his coming. We saw the purpose of the coming of John the Baptist. He came to bear witness to, to point to, to call people's attention to, to give testimony on behalf of the light, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, so that all might believe through him. And so he, John the Baptist, was not the light, meaning he's not the Christ, he's not the Lord, he's not supreme, he's simply a man who came to bear witness about the light. And then we see John the Evangelist, the, the writer of this book, uh, bring further clarification to John the Baptist in verse 15 in his role. John bore witness about him, the only son, the light, and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he comes after me, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So you see John the Baptist poke his head up fairly often throughout the prologue, throughout these first 18 verses. And immediately following this prologue, in verse 19, who do we think we read about? John the Baptist. And so we read about this testimony that John the Baptist gives. And so when approached by the priests and the Levites, John confessed, he did not deny, but he confessed freely that he's not the Christ. John wanted to make it clear that I am not the Messiah. I am not the Christ. He eventually quotes Isaiah and says, he's simply a voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And so he clearly lets everybody know that he, um, who he is, that there's going to be one who's coming after him, who is far superior to him. And he is going to this one who's coming after John the Baptist, the one that we know to be Jesus. Uh, he is, uh, John is unworthy to untie his sandals. And then the next day, John saw Jesus coming. And he points to Jesus and says, hey, this is the guy I was telling you about. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John then goes into this long explanation of how he knows that Jesus is this one. And then the next day, the story continues on with John being with his disciples, two of his disciples, and pointing at Jesus and saying, hey, Again, behold the Lamb of God. And it's at this point that we see those disciples throw the peace sign up to John, say good riddance, and begin to follow after Jesus. And it seems that at this point, the sun has begun to set on John's ministry. And the sun has begun to rise on Jesus' ministry. John, it seems to be that he is exiting the scene and Jesus is entering center stage. 
Jesus' ministry has begun to lift off. John the Evangelist, the writer of this gospel, starts to record the accounts of Jesus' ministry, first being Jesus turning water into wine. And we see then Jesus cleanse the temple. And then for the past several weeks, we've been looking at this encounter with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, Jesus telling him that he is the, that one must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. And now, strangely, John the Baptist resurfaces. He comes back on stage. Uh, during Easter, for the past three or four years, the Perizzine household has been sick. Somebody in our household has been sick. Our daughter, Ann Clayton, one and a half year old daughter, had the, the opportunity of being sick this Easter. So there were no doctors uh, open on a late Saturday night. So we had to take our daughter to the emergency room. And so we have two kids under the age of three in an emergency room on Saturday night before Easter. You can imagine how that goes. But surprisingly, uh, things go well. Daughter had strep throat. She's fine now. And our son did really well. He behaved really well. So that next morning, we're getting him dressed for church. And I'm, I'm getting him dressed, and I'm telling him, I'm saying, true, you did so good last night. I'm very proud of you. You were a good boy. Well, about that time, my wife wakes up my daughter, and she's crying. My daughter, not my wife. She's crying. And my son says, oh, we have to go to the hospital again. And it's like, no, but we, we don't. She's sick, but we know what to do. It's okay. And so it, it see like I had that same reaction when I see that John the Baptist resurfaces. Oh, we're going to read about John the Baptist again. I feel like we've, we're beating a dead horse at this point. But John the evangelist, the writer of this gospel is intentional in his writings. And so we know this because of John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. We know that he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John didn't run out of things to write about at this point and then say, you know what? I'm, I'm going to talk about John the Baptist again just to, to reach my word count. That's not what's taking place here. No, John's goal is to convince his readers that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the creator and sustainer of all things, the preeminent God in flesh who came to redeem sinners like us. So because of this purpose, we know that John is intentional and has a purpose in referencing back to John the Baptist in order to reiterate. Jesus' superiority and greatness. So let's look at this passage. Let's, we don't have to reread it, but let's look at verses 23 through 24. These first two verses, 23 through 24, sort of set the stage for the rest of this chapter, um, for the rest of the passage that we're going to be looking at today. They set the context for um, where they are and what's taking place. So let's digest this really quickly. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. Now, we don't know exactly when all of this took place. All we know is that it was after what previously transpired. So after this encounter with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples go into the Judean countryside. 
Now, we also uh, know that Jesus was just in Jerusalem because of what previously transpired, which it was in Judea. So Jesus and his disciples have essentially moved from the city of Jerusalem into the country. He's gone from an urban setting to a rural setting. He's gone from downtown Mobile to Dawes Road, right? So this is what we see taking place. And what Jesus is doing there is he's baptizing, And in a few weeks, we're going to get to John chapter 4, and we're going to actually see that Jesus himself didn't baptize, rather his disciples baptized for him. And we'll expound on that and bring clarity to that when we get there. But what John the evangelist, the writer of this gospel, is telling us here is that Jesus has left the city of Jerusalem and went to the Judean countryside and has remained there in his baptizing. And then we see in verse 23, the scene change. It's almost like there's a commercial break between verses 22 and 23. And when the commercial breaks over, we're introduced to a different scene with different characters. Because in verse 23, we see that John the Baptist is also baptizing at Anon, near Salem. And so I tried to do some research to figure out exactly um, how far away Jesus and John would have been at this time. And and we really don't uh, know the exact distance because we don't know the exact location of where Jesus was. We just know he was in the countryside. So this could have been a distance anywhere from Mobile to Fairhope or Mobile to Pensacola, anywhere in between. We, We really don't know. But what we do know is that there's a distance between John and Jesus at this time and that they are not in the same location. But most importantly, and what I think John's trying to communicate here, is that there's an overlap in John and Jesus's ministry. Um, So Jesus is in the Judean countryside baptizing and John is in Samaria baptizing, which will present to us a challenge here in a minute in the preceding verses. What we will see in these verses is the ministry of Jesus has become a threat to the ministry of John the Baptist. But before we get to that dilemma, let's address this awkward clarifying statement in verse 24. Uh, For John has not yet but been put in prison. Why does John feel the need to insert this bit of information? Because for modern day readers, for us, this kind of feels out of place and unnecessary, something that, that we don't need in order to understand what's going on. But we know that that's not the case. We know that John's intentional and that he's putting these words there for a purpose. So why did John the evangelist feel the need to give this bit of information to us? Well, I think he's seeking to bring clarity and validation to the timing of what's taking place. You see, all of the synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, begin reporting Jesus's ministry after John the Baptist's arrest. Uh, an example would be Mark chapter 1, verse 14. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so what I think John is doing here is answering an anticipated question that his readers might be asking at this point. He's anticipating his readers saying, scratching their heads saying, wait a minute, I thought that Jesus's ministry begun after John was arrested. And so how is what you're saying true? How does that job, how does that fit? And so John's simply bringing clarity to the timing of what took place. And so he's providing us with additional clarifying information to support the validity of the story that we're reading. 
reading now. So let's continue on, looking at verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And so this discussion isn't a, excuse me, sir, let me talk to you about purification for a moment. Sure, I would be happy to have this conversation with you. That's not what we see taking place here. This would have been a a disagreement, a debate, and a debate centered around purification. And I think within the context of this passage, we can safely assume that purification refers to baptism. Baptism was symbolic of repentance and purification. And so if you remember back to John chapter 1, verse 25, John the Baptist tells the priests and the Levites who came to question him that he's simply baptizing with water. But there is going to be one who comes after him who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, one who comes after him who is far greater. And so he's saying that his baptism simply cleansed the external. It was incomplete, incapable of cleansing the inside. It's an outward symbol of what transpires internally. Now, we, other than that, we don't know what the specific debate, uh, what the specific details to this debate or discussion are, but what we do know is important. And what's important is where this debate led to. And it led to John's disciples coming to John with questions. They say to John this, Rabbi, And let's pause for a moment here. The term rabbi means master, lord, sir, or teacher. And what's interesting is this is the only time in the Gospel of John that this term is used to or is given to someone other than Jesus. And so I think that John the evangelist or the the writer of this gospel is seeking to show us how John's disciples viewed him at this moment. His disciples have such a high view of John and they have this um, jealous uh, energy or going towards protecting his name, his fame and his ministry. So, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. Who, who are they talking about here? Who is the, the he that you bore witness about? Sunday school answer will work just fine. Jesus. He's talking about Jesus here. And so it's interesting that John's disciples won't even call Jesus by name at this point. They go to great lengths to go out of their way to sidestep Jesus' name. He who was with you, or he who you bore witness about. And so they're going to great lengths to protect their master's reputation. So rabbi, lord, master, teacher, he who must not be named, the one that you bore witness about. Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. So I think if you begin to pull the curtain back, then um, behind these words, then you will begin to see the ugly, bitter, envious heart of John's disciples here. In the eyes of John's disciples, the growing ministry of Jesus, the very one that John has constantly, constantly directed their attention towards, has become a threat to John's ministry. The growth of Jesus' ministry is a threat now to John's ministry. Everyone's going to him. John, master, your your light's flickering. The crowds are dwindling. But Jesus' light is growing ever brighter. His is growing. What are we going to do? They're fighting to keep John superior. They're fighting to keep him in the limelight. And this self-serving mentality, I don't think is a foreign concept to us today. I think that translates to us as well. 
In fact, I would probably submit that it's probably more common to us today in our culture than maybe it was then, especially within the context of business, right? So if another business similar to your business moves into the neighborhood and opens up shop right across the street from your business, are you excited and do you tell all your customers, go? No, you don't. At that point, the success of that business becomes a threat to your own success. So therefore, rather than celebrate that business, that business becomes your competitor, and you seek to um, take their customers and maintain yours. I think what we see here is that transpiring within the hearts of John's disciples. And what's dangerous is when that mentality begins to seep into the church. We're going to expound on this more in a minute as we go on. But when God's blessing on another man or another woman or another church leads us to resentment or bitterness, then we must understand that we are in error. We have dived headfirst into sin, and we must repent, and we must repent quickly. And what we see is that John's disciples have done just that. They are now in error because they've taken on this mentality themselves. Look, Rabbi, Jesus is baptizing and everyone's going to him. And so come, Rabbi, bite of this low-hanging fruit of gossip and slander. What are we going to do? Oh, but John does not take uh, that temptation. It doesn't latch on to him in the face of his disciples' bitter jealousy. John responds here with a beautiful, humble, Christ-exalting correction. Look at John's response. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And so let's spend some time unpacking this. John's disciples said, look, Jesus's ministry is growing it's becoming a threat to yours, and John's first response is with this broad, general truth. He says, guys, chill out. Pump the brakes for a moment. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And so John's response here is similar to Paul's in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, which says, which won't, it won't be on the screen, but it says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And so what these, this verse tells us here in John is that no person anywhere at any time can enjoy one thing that was not given to him. God is the giver of good gifts. The things that you possess are your possessions, not because you are great, because, but because God is gracious. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. As we learned that just not too long ago in the book of James. And so John is saying a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. A gift comes from heaven. Therefore, within the context of this passage, both John and Jesus, they're receiving their roles from above. John was the forerunner to Jesus, coming to prepare the way for the Messiah because he was called by God to do so. 
So may Christ be exalted while he carries out this calling. And whenever God chooses to close the curtain on his ministry, praise God. And may Christ still be exalted, John is saying. And so if John was discontent with the state of his ministry, then what he would essentially be doing is shaking his fist bitterly at the gracious and wise God who sovereignly rules over all things. So rather than shake his fist at God, John reminds his disciples of his purpose of ministry. He says in verse 28, guys, you heard me say, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So this is a message that he's been proclaiming from day one, from the jump, he's been proclaiming this. And we've seen that clearly communicated to us from John chapter one, verse six, all the way until now. It has been made apparent that John is not the Christ, but he has been sent before him. Yet we see John's disciples don't get it. And so I think we see the deception and the deceitfulness of our hearts the terrifying reality is that our bitterness and resentment is capable of clouding a truth that we've heard day in, day out for years. And so John's saying, guys, how many times do I have to tell you, I am not the Christ. I am not the Lamb of God. I am simply the one called by God to prepare the way for the Christ. And so he's saying, do you remember me saying that? I'm not even worthy of untying his sandals. This truth has not changed. It was true yesterday, and it's true today, and it's going to be true tomorrow. I am not the Christ, John is saying. I'm simply one coming before him. So to combat this bitter jealousy, John has one. Uh, one looks to entrust in God's sovereignty, and then two, he then reminds his disciples of the message that he's been proclaiming since the beginning. And to bring this point home, John then gives his disciples an analogy in verse 29. It says this, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. So in order to bring home the point that Christ is supreme, John decides to use this imagery of a wedding. Now, weddings were ordered a little differently during this time. During this time, the friend of the bridegroom would have been responsible to organize, to oversee, and to prepare the details of the wedding. And so John's simply saying, I'm, I'm just the friend of the groom, the one who came to prepare the way for this glorious union between Christ and his bride, the church. John knows his role. Now, there, with that, there's this universal truth of weddings, and that true truth is true in all cultures. And that truth is that weddings are not about the friend of the groom, right? It's not about the bridesmaids. It's not about the bridegroomsmen. Groom, I almost said groomsmaids. It's not groomsmaids. It's groomsmen. Um, and so that's a truth that we know and understand, that the day is about the bride and the groom. And so let's celebrate and rejoice that. And when we see something contrary to that, 
what do we do? We, we cringe. We, we feel uncomfortable because we know that that's not the way that it's intended to be. And so in the second season of The Office, when Bob Vance marries Phyllis and Michael Scott gets up to begin to give this 40-minute speech that you see here that begins with this Webster's Dictionary defines wedding as the fusing of two metals with a hot torch. When this scene is taking place, you feel uncomfortable. It's awkward. It makes you laugh. It makes you sweat. You're like, oh, this is the worst. You see it on the face of the bride and the groom. And why? Because it's awkward. That's not the way that it was intended to be. When we see a friend of the groom seek to steal the limelight of the the bride and the groom, we either roll our eyes or we cringe, we get the nervous sweats, or we are boldly run and tackle that person, right? Why? Because the wedding day belongs to the bride and the groom. And so it was John's responsibility to be the friend of the groom. God called him to organize, to oversee, to prepare the details of this wedding day. And that he did. He came and prepared the way for the coming of the Messiah. And now that the groom's here, he has joyfully taken a step back and he celebrates and rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. Now, what I don't want us to miss here before we dive into some application is a very subtle yet important claim to the divine nature of Jesus. And so it would be foolish to think that both Johns at this point are ignorant to um, the Old Testament passages that depict Israel as the bride of the Lord. An example of this would be Isaiah chapter 62, verses 4 through 5, um, along with several other Old Testament passages say this, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And so your God rejoices over you as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride. And we along with John the Baptist, fast forward to the New Testament, and we should be aware of this continuation of this analogy of the bridegroom in Ephesians 5. Husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and blameless without blemish. And so you see this, this wedding analogy, presenting her holy and blameless. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. And the marriage union is a profound mystery, and it refers to Christ and his church. And then you see in Revelation 21 that says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. A bride adorned for her husband. So John the Baptist's claim that Jesus is the bridegroom is another claim to the divine nature of Christ, the Word becoming flesh, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, has came and dwelt among men. He, Jesus, is the preeminent, supreme Lord over all, the one that they have been anxiously waiting upon his arrival. And with this understanding, it brings John the Baptist joy, great joy, to step out of the limelight and allow Jesus to take center stage. 
John says in verses 29 and 30, therefore this joy of mine is now complete. He, Christ, must increase. I must decrease. And so John is saying, I find my joy in decreasing, in sliding out of the limelight, so that Christ might be exalted. He must increase. I must decrease. One commentator that I came in contact with this week says this. I couldn't figure out who it was, couldn't remember. So an anonymous quote, only a great man can accept his demise with joy. What a beautiful picture we see here. And so let's draw some application. How does this apply to us today as the church? So as I thought through this, here's the deal. Over the past few years, Mars Hill has experienced significant growth in membership and in attendance. We've grown. Um, The Lord has been gracious. You can't tell that by today. Um, Apparently, our growth is dependent upon weather. Um, But there's a major difference. When you look at our growth, there's a major difference between our baptism and our growth percentages, right? And so what I think that tells us is how we're growing. We're not growing so much through conversions than we are through transfer of membership. Meaning for many different reasons, people are leaving a local body of believers to become members of this local body of believers. And in saying that, hear me, I am not throwing stones or condemnation towards any of us who have left the church to come to this church. That's not the point of this. I want to be sensitive to the many reasons as to why one might leave a church to go to another. There's several. There's many good reasons to do that. And there's several many bad reasons to do that as well. That's not the point here. But what I do say that for is this. I think the application we can draw from this passage is this question. How do we talk about and how do we view other congregations in the city of Mobile? So whether that be the church that we've left or whether that be churches that we have not left, do we at times pridefully slander, hoping to tear down other churches in that area because we feel superior to them, thinking that our uh, philosophy of ministry here at Mars Hill is better than theirs? Do we, is that our posture of heart towards other churches here in Mobile? Or do we angrily and bitterly become resentful at the thought of other churches growing and experiencing the blessing of God in their churches? And so listen, at the pinnacle, at the climax of John the Baptist's ministry, when things were going well, when the the crowds were coming, John did not become puffed up with pride. He didn't slander other people around him. Rather, he humbly shifted the focus off of himself by exalting Christ. It was his joy to exalt Christ. It was his joy to see him lifted up. And so it was his greatest joy to have the limelight shifted off of himself and onto Jesus. And now when it appears that John the Baptist's ministry is losing steam, he still humbly shifts the focus off of himself in order to exalt Christ. His joy is complete in the lifting up of the Son of God. And so in the same way that John the Baptist sets his own ministerial prosperity aside in order to see Christ exalted, we too must do the same. So this local body of believers, Mars Hill Church, 
has been called and equipped by God for a specific purpose. And that purpose is to exalt Christ through the way that we serve one another, through the teaching of this word, through the way that we live out and the way that we proclaim the gospel. And listen, there are many other body of believers here in Mobile who've been called and equipped for the same purpose. And that purpose is the same as ours, to exalt Christ through the way that we serve one another or through the way that they serve one another and the way that they live out and proclaim the gospel. And so competition within the kingdom of God is not welcome, right? We should rejoice over the advancement of the gospel through the labor of our brothers and sisters here in Mobile. And listen, taking that a step further in the coming months and in the coming years, this is going to become more and more of a struggle for us as a church. And I say that because of this. For those of you who don't know, we as a church are actively pursuing church planning. And give you a, a brief update in that pursuit. We are looking to launch in September which is very exciting. We actually just heard back from the YMCA. So we're going to be planting in the downtown area, and we hope to sign the lease with the YMCA to where we're going to be meeting at that location on the corner of Water Street, and I think it's St. Michael. Um, we have about 35 members of Mars Hill who have committed to be a part of that core team. So we, at this point, are training, actively training up um, to send out but the kicker is, is that this isn't going to be another Mars Hill location. This isn't going to be Mars Hill Church downtown. This is going to be a separate church. We're um, not trying to build this franchise of Mars Hill. We don't want to have a Mars Hill at every corner. So we delight in the idea of training up and sending out folks um, and not receiving any credit of that from that church. I have the opportunity of being a part of that core team who's going to go. I'm going to be one of the pastors who go goes on that plant. Um, our church is going to be, the church name is going to be Harbor Community Church, and we would greatly covet your prayers. Um, be praying for us that the Lord will use us in that area. We're very excited about going. Um, it's very scary at the same time, leaving that which is comfortable. Um, but this is an endeavor that we feel called to go um, and something that we're moving towards as a church. But listen, the more that we move in this direction, the more we're going to be tempted to think competitively, right? That's our, our natural sinful tendency to gravitate that way. So the more that we pursue church planning, the more we're going to be tempted to follow in the steps of John's disciples here. We're going to be tempted to think, hey, Harbor Community is getting in the way of what we're trying to accomplish here at Mars Hill, you're telling me that we're going to train up people, we're going to uh, use financial resources to plant this church, and we're not going to receive any recognition from this? Our name's not going to be stamped on this? What if, they, what if we send too many people? What if, what if we struggle as a church? What if they grow to be bigger than us? Well, we rejoice in that because that means that Christ is being exalted and the gospel is going forth. And on the flip side of that is Harbor Community. Hey, Mars Hill has so much more than us. What if we don't grow as fast as we want? What if we're struggling and we begin to look at the growth and the health of Mars Hill and we begin to become envious and resentful? What do we do at that point? We rejoice and we be thankful, praising God that Christ's glory is 
being lifted up, that he is being exalted through our brothers and sisters at Mars Hill. So there's going to be a temptation to become resentful, but may we follow in the steps of John the Baptist in celebrating and rejoicing in the advancement of the gospel. Listen, the moment that another church's success becomes a threat to your church's glory is the moment that you've dived into sin. And so may we therefore fight to put such sin to death. May this competitive mentality that's so prevalent in our culture that is not welcome within the church, may we be quick to put that to death, and may we celebrate and rejoice in Christ being exalted. And so John the Baptist and Jesus, they're not competitors. They're not enemies. Although they were in different locations, working at different times, they worked in harmony. John the Baptist came to prepare the way. He was called by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. He made straight the way for Christ. And in the same way, Mars Hill and insert the church name are not competitors. We are co-laborers, right? The list, we could go down the list. Mars Hill in X, Mars Hill in Y, X, Mars Hill in Z. Go back up to A and B and C, right? So we're, we're not competitors. We're co-laborers. But I think there is a disclaimer really quick, a caveat to where my wife and I, the community group that we're plugged into, we just finished going through 1 John. And in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you see constant warnings against false teachers, men who seek to deceive and lead astray God's flock, God's people. And John makes it clear that we should not believe every spirit, but we should test them to see whether they are from God, because many false teachers have gone out into the world. So don't hear me endorsing every church in Mobile. There are certainly churches that are probably teaching a gospel contrary to the true gospel. And the Bible gives us clear warnings to steer clear of them. They're deceptive, manipulative, cunning. They're trying to feed off of God's flock, trying to deceive them. But it's been brought to our attention as pastoral staff that that there's been a rumor going around within other churches that we would respect and love in Mobile saying that we, Mars Hill, are saying that we, Mars Hill, are the only churches in Mobile that are teaching the Bible. And that's not true. Is our philosophy of ministry different than many churches in Mobile? Sure, absolutely. Does Mars Hill teach the Bible differently than many other churches in Mobile? Sure, absolutely. Are we the only churches in Mobile that teach the Bible? No. Not even remotely close. And so saying that is offensive to our brothers and sisters. It's divisive, and it is not edifying. And so may we therefore not only guard our own hearts from this competitive mindset, but may we um, also seek to be intentional in protecting our brothers and sisters' hearts from this mindset of, as well. And so rather than degrading our brothers and sisters who have a different philosophy of ministry than us, may we lay such arrogance and pride aside and seek to build them up in the words that we speak. May our speech be edifying, seasoned with salt in regards to the way that we speak about other churches in the area. So there's a ton of application that we could draw from the way that we interact with other churches, but I think we can also lastly zoom in and make this a little more personal. So as we close, 
the reality is, is that we're not central to the gospel, right? We are not the, the central focus point. God, through the perfect life, atoning death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus has extended to us hope, a hope that if we place our faith in him, trust in him, we will be rescued from the wrath of God that we rightfully deserve. We will be rescued from wrath into peace with a promise that we now cling to, a promise of full restoration of his created order forever, all for his glory and his honor for eternity. And if we have experienced that, if our faith resides in Christ, then we are now called to live out this gospel. We are to be imitators of Christ. Gospel doctrine should lead to gospel culture within our church. So if you are a believer, if you, have, you then have been uniquely gifted by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of building up his church, the body of Christ, we are one body with many members. So that tells us that you've been gifted differently than the person to your left and to your right and to the person behind you and before you. And that's okay. And so you and your gifting is very important to the health of this church. But I think there's a temptation for all of us to look at those around us and their giftings and begin to compare and maybe even become resentful or bitter or insecure. And when we do that, we fall into error. So we must remember the purpose of our gifting is not for our own gain. The purpose of our gifts is to serve the church, to build up the body of Christ. And so may our joy be complete in the fading away of our own self-glory and in the lifting up of Christ. May it bring us joy to use our gifts for the building up of his church. And we, may we find joy, not jealousy, in seeing our brothers and sisters building up the church using their gifts as well. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you, and God, we thank you. God, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. God, the blaring reality that we were dead in our sins. Enemies to you, hostile enemies to you, but you being rich in mercy have made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in our sins. Lord, you are gracious and you are merciful, and we thank you for that. And so, Lord, as recipients of that grace and mercy, may we be eager to display that and live that out. Lord, I pray for our hearts. Holy Spirit, convict us where we need to be convicted. Lord, comfort us where we need to be comforted. Lord, may Mars Hill, may this body of believers celebrate the advancement of the gospel not just through this local body, but through our co-laborers, our brothers and sisters all throughout this city. And so, Lord, we pray for the churches in this city today. Lord, I pray that you use them. Lord, I pray that your church will be built up, that they will be encouraged. Lord, I pray that there will be men and women in this city today who come to know you through the, the faithful preaching of your word of our brothers and sisters throughout Mobile. And so, Lord, we praise you and we long for you to receive glory, even if we don't receive recognition for it. Lord, I pray that we delight in and find joy in decreasing so that you may increase. 
Lord, I pray that we're not hearers of the word only, but doers of the word. It's through your son's name that we pray. Amen.